Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. We publish blog posts from academics, animators and VFX artists for people to access, as well as these podcasts that take listeners on an informative but hopefully entertaining journey through the fascinating world of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org or subscribe via your favourite podcast subscription service. While you're there, give us a quick like, click the subscribe button, or give us a quick review while you're at it, as we could always use the extra help. For now, do enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am within my human form, Alex Sargent. I knew you were going to do this to me. I knew you were going to do this to me. Uh, and I'm of Pandora, Chris Holiday. Yeah, Navi through to the core. Um, yep. Today, as we've already given away, we're talking about Avatar, um, James Cameron's uh, behemothic blockbuster from about a decade ago now, which caused a stir with its um, innovative 3D effects and motion capture, as well as kind of its callback to kind of um, old, you know, 18th, 19th century fantasy literature of things like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Last of the Mohicans. Um, so there's a sort of co- looking back and looking forward structure to the movie that I found really interesting as a fantasy theorist. Um, Chris, anything to talk about VFX-wise this week? Yeah, well, we were saying just before we came came on that, uh, that, that the film is often held up as this sort of moment within Hollywood VFX um, and also the ways in which it kind of blurs the boundary between, between animation and, and live action. Uh, I guess from my perspective and jumping off some of the conversations we've had on, on previous podcasts I'm sort of interested in the relationship between the film's I guess anti-imperialist message discourses of the post-racial and then how that feeds into the way it sort of uses effects uh, and the and the role of motion capture in that the kind of the kind of stars that are mo-capped and, and the racial politics of that too terrific well if that weren't rich enough um, we have um, our guest this week um, Rupert Reed, who is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of East Angela um, and he specializes in a wide range of topics from the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein to, to the contemporary climate crisis um, making room for a discussion of a fantasy film or two particularly in his most recent work a film philosophy of ecology and enlightenment uh, Rupert until recently was a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion and he's also been a national parliamentary candidate European parliamentary candidate and and councillor for the Green Party of England and Wales, and his political activism and philosophy kind of feed into one, which is, I think is a really makes him a really interesting person to talk to in terms of Avatar. So, Rupert, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Well, let's let's start off because there's it's a long movie, and, and it's hopefully a, um, a, a shorter podcast at least. So, um, lots to get through. Um, let's start with Avatar then. Um, Given your range of interests, given that your your work is both kind of political and and philosophical, it's both theoretical and practical. Um, how what's your experience and what's your relationship with the film Avatar? How does it feed into your sort of intellectual and political interests? Well, you know, Avatar was actually part of the way that my political interests and my philosophical interests were brought together, really. Uh, a, a generation ago, uh, when I was a much younger person, uh, I had these kind of two things. I did uh, did my philosophy and I did my Wittgenstein philosophy of science and so on. Um, and they didn't really join up 
But Avatar helped me to join them because it helped me to to see literally, and that's what it's all about, of course, uh, seeing, really seeing, to see the way in which it was possible and necessary to talk and think more about the world as the earth, as the, the, the place where we necessarily are, because I think that's what Pandora is really. It's not really uh, another planet uh, at all. It's this planet as it still is and as it should be and as it uh, as it could be. And when I saw Avatar, I mean, I was enormously looking forward to it. I, I thought this is going to be uh, an event uh, at the cinema and I wasn't disappointed. And I know a lot of other people who felt the same way. And I really kind of thought at the time, wow, maybe this could really change something uh, in our world. And I kind of think that if there'd been more of a movement or, or an effort uh, around the uh, issuing of Avatar at the time to, to take advantage of the impact that it had, then it could have changed quite a lot of stuff because it had an enormous impact on uh, a lot of people. One of the ways I know this is, is that it wasn't just me and some of my mates who were enormously impressed with it. I spent a bit of time, for example, watching the uh, hashtag uh, Avatar on Twitter um, at the time of the film's issuing, and it was extraordinary. It really, it really looked very different from from the uh, buzz around most films. People were saying all sorts of intriguing things. Like, I saw somebody saying, for example, "I've watched Avatar, and I've decided now not to join the army." Uh, wow. I saw another person who said, uh, "Wow, just come out of Avatar. I was thinking of getting a four by four, but now I'm not going to get one." This is pretty unusual to have uh, fictional films really seeming to make some kind of impact on people's uh, life choices. So, yeah, there's a smattering of, of thoughts and themes for us to begin with. I think this film was uh, an event. It was certainly an event um, in in my life. I think it could have been even more of an event if it had been taken advantage of. And one of the reasons I'm still interested in Avatar is that myself and my colleague, the film theorist uh, Peter Kramer. Uh, we have this idea, we call it the Avatar Project. We have this idea of trying to key into when the long, long-awaited sequels finally come to see if we can actually get some more um, political vibe going uh, around the issuing of those and maybe they can make a more systematic difference to the world even than the original film made. I think it's great to talk positively about a big popular text because I think you know sometimes our listeners get frustrated at us when we when we uh, critique uh, films that are sort of you know so um, off, offer themselves so off just as sites for popular entertainment um, and and you're, you know you're right I mean I remember you know we'll talk about the ecological kind of um, substance of the movie but. I can remember, you know, a Palestinians' uh, movements kind of dressing up as Navi, um, kind of warriors as kind of an expression of solidarity and an expression of yeah. community and things like that. And that's yeah. kind of part of a wave of, you know, popular fantasy, whether it be the sort of V for Vendetta masks um, or, you know, these kind of symbols of fantasy entertainment that are then used for very real political purposes. So yeah. I, I, we can go to the philosophy, we can go to the politics, but I guess I'm interested in picking up on a thread what you said there, if only the, 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 the kind of opportunity of the movie had been realised. So what do you think happened to not realise that? Was it grumpy academics like us, kind of <laughs> just kind of dismissing it and not going with it? Or was there some sort of problem with how the movie kind of worked politically or socially to, to stop the potential radical change that it, the film at least seems to suggest well, politically? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think you need political organisation around things to make the most of them. Uh, and you're right, there were um, organisations and movements that picked up on Avatar. Uh, it happened in Palestine, it happened in various other parts of the, of the world, including in among the Dongria people um, in India who were trying to stop um, uh, a brutal mining enterprise. So it was very directly relevant mm. to them. Of course, fascinatingly, Avatar was in effect... Um, banned in China um, and the reason uh, for that it's pretty clear was that the Chinese government was afraid it might ignite uh, land protests against land grabs um, so there was some very real political effect from the film but what I was getting at was I think there could have been so much more if it had been um, deliberately built on mm -hmm. I think also as you say Alex there was some semi-deliberate pushback of various kinds publicly against the film. So there was the Chinese government actions. There was um, a lot of agitation uh, against the film in the United States from uh, right-wing um, political forces, especially um, Christian evangelical groups. Um, and then there was the, uh, the pushback against it from various among the, the left and from the academic world, some in the identity politics world. And my message to, to those people, including um, Zizek, who I don't think even actually saw the film and <laughs> wrote very ill-informed stuff against it. Uh, my message to those people is, look, be, be very careful when you've got allies like the Chinese government and, and like Christian evangelical um, right-wing zealots in the United States. Do you really want those people as your, uh, as your allies? Uh, I think that the, the criticisms which Zizek and various uh, left-wing academics and so on made against um, Avatar, which I address uh, in my book, were mostly wrong-headed. Of course, it's always possible to pick holes in any big uh, blockbuster uh, film, just as if you've got enough mind to do so. You can do that the same with any art house film, frankly. Um, uh, but I think this film was far more than just entertainment. And what I'm interested in doing with films like this and films like Lord of the Rings and Gravity and some of the other popular films I talk about in my book is really accentuating the positive and thinking uh, and thinking sort of ingenuously with the film about what, what the film is seeking to accomplish. And I think Avatar does something quite extraordinary. I just taught it again to my students uh, a few weeks ago at the University of East Anglia. Uh, one of the things I really dwelt on and that they really... Um, absorbed, I think, was some of the fascinating way that point of view is is used uh, in the film. For example, the the fact which I I note that none of the critics of the film uh, uh, note, except possibly the uh, the uh, the right wing uh, American uh, critics, um, that uh, when you um, see the death of Quaritch, the the villain character uh, in the film, towards the end. Um, you experience that briefly from his point of view. Um, the, the second arrow that hits him um, to kill him, um, that's a direct point of view shot of the arrow coming towards you. And, whoa, what's, what's going on with that? What's, my reading of that is that, that at that moment, it's the sort of final gesture of, of, the, of an attempt to sort of kill the American imperialist within you or within us all. Uh, and to and to make clear that to, that we're um, implicated um, among those who uh, we wouldn't want to be uh, felt feeling ourselves as uh, as on the side of um, in the film. And so, in this sense, it seems to me that actually the um, the right wing um, evangelical critics of the film who say it's anti-American 
uh, and the uh, the Chinese government. They are in many ways more accurate viewers of the film, it seems to me, than, than Zizek and some of the other um, academic critics of the film, because they get that this film really is an extremely powerful piece of propaganda, but much more than just propaganda, because I think the way it works is often quite um, careful and subtle. The film is an extremely powerful piece of, um, of argumentation, as it were, uh, against um, uh, anti-ecological uh, perspectives on the world, uh, against uh, imperialism, uh, and for um, a, a very different way of feeling ourselves uh, in relation to the planet, frankly. Just picking up on, ex- on on kind of some of your points, I was struck by how it maps really nice. And what a lot of my notes are about fantasies of control. And actually, I think your your point about the the kind of POV shots that punctuate a lot of the the ways that characters see, and of course the way that that we see. Um, a lot of my notes are around kind of yeah, fantasies of control, um, surrogacy, perception, bodily illusion, but also the idea of trust, the trust that we place in 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 bodies and, and people and of course this is then amplified by the fact these are digital bodies um in terms of the the sort of the epicness of the the film quite soon after the film was released there was a special issue of a journal which was all about avatar um and the first paragraph of that the introduction talks exactly about you know it's the the the, the budget of the film the highest box office gross the highest number of dvds and blu-rays sold um that were sold on earth day to to kind of coincide with the films and this is william brown and jenna eng's um uh, introduction to a special issue of animation and interdisciplinary journal that talks about um the way that home video tied in with its sort of yeah ecological narrative um worldwide release on a number of screens winner of oscars uh, and also how its significance lies in what they term the kind of high pro- as a high profile example of contemporary hollywood's globalized industrial practice so clearly the film is is epic in the way that we might understand definitions of the, the blockbuster and all this kind of stuff um but then I was thinking about the film towards the end of the first decade of the 21st century, um, ways I think that you can read read the film in relation to its technology of motion capture, which Alex mentioned at the start, how where motion capture was towards the end of 2008, 2009, um, the way that, that I suppose animation studies, writers on animation thought about motion capture as a technology of illusion. Um, the fact that this film is released the same year as a film called Surrogates, a very interesting film that stars Bruce Willis that is about fantasies of control, where um, a white guy, James Cromwell, um, acts and performs as uh, a black guy, Ving Rhames. Um, and it's very interesting to, to locate the 2008-2009-ness of Avatar in relation to um, the post-racial Obama motion capture, the kinds of films that were dominating at the box office, Harry Potter, um, animated films uh, of various kinds. So I found it really... And, you know, the way that the film, I suppose, reflexively acknowledges that through the, I think there's a line that talks about the kind of puppet show, one of the criticisms of the way that yeah. the, the humans and the Navi are integrating or working, and the idea of humanoids. Um, so all this stuff around kind of surrogacy and avatars and puppetry, um, I find really, really fascinating. And, and, and I remember the film coming out, but not having seen it up until this this podcast. So um, I'm trying to remember the impact. I remember Ben Stiller turning up at the Oscars dressed as a as a Navi. I remember that um, and the way that the film was sort of held up as this 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 moment. But I think you're both right that retrospectively, it's got a bit of a bad, not bad, but it's 
it seems fair game in a way that that a lot of other blockbusters and we you know let's not forget iron man is the year before this so this we're off into marvel really and i and i just wonder what it was about this film that seems to have attracted is it something to do with cameron is it something to do with the blockbuster is this this category um and you mentioned peter kramer i know kind of peter's interested in the economics and the and the kind of business and of, of hollywood as, as much as anything and i'm just trying to yeah wrap my head around why why a film that could be so held up in lots and lots of different ways and in lots of different um kind of contexts certainly has a it's it's a it's kind of so popular that that no one likes it, or people don't like it, or or it's it's pushed to the side in a particular kind of way. So I, I don't quite know, have any answers to that, but there's there's a lot going on with this film. Yeah, well, so I do think I have one or two answers to that. I think it's a really important question. I've thought about it a lot. I think that there is um, a snootiness among yeah. uh, academics and a snootiness among uh, uh, left wing and sort of right on and sort of woke. Um, politics which has been going on for quite a while it's not a very recent phenomenon although it has become more extreme sometimes recently and the snootiness uh, one way one form it takes is this if something's popular then it can't be good because the people are always basically wrong and you have to be a super clever left-wing academic or political activist like me to see through uh, the, the nonsense which always takes in uh, the people uh, and the way that they are always suborned to ideologies which they don't uh, understand and which are imposed on them by way of by way of films i think this is a very dangerous uh, anti-democratic uh, point of view I think it's a point of view that doesn't take seriously the following possibility that I think is very real, that it is sometimes the case, I'm not saying it's always the case by any means, but that it is sometimes the case that something is popular because it's good. Uh, and this is a thought which, uh, which um, has been very difficult to state in academia for, for a long time, the idea that, that people might actually be able to perceive uh, and experience um, quality. Uh, mm. And, and uh, I've been thinking about this a lot uh, for a long time in relation to Avatar, also uh, recently and been writing on it recently in relation to gravity, which I think experienced some similar difficulties. And I think it's, it's interesting to compare the two precisely because they're basically the only two um, really um, high quality, I would argue, 3D films of a, of a mass level of, um, of impact that there have been so far, which might be quite surprising. Um, and I think that both of them do this incredible job of um, placing you inside uh, a world. Uh, in Avatar, it's, it's the world of Pandora, which is sort of our world through a glass, brightly, if you will. Uh, and in Gravity, of course, it's, uh, it's outer space. But again, the real point is, is coming home and in this way, both of them are in a certain sense, sort of as I see them, and I talk about this in the book, sort of remakes or refashionings of the central ideas of, of 2001, uh, A Space Odyssey, which I think is, has, has um, succeeded much more easily in being recognized um, widely as a, a really great uh, film. So, yeah, I think that too many people think that if something um, is uh, popular, if something has a large budget, then it can only be assessed um, as ideology, as propaganda of the, of the purest time and at purest kind, uh, and as entertainment. Uh, I call this point of view entertainmentism, the idea that anything that is that is inter alia uh, entertaining uh, cannot be good, cannot be worth taking seriously, 
and must be uh, picked apart. And I take a very different view. Uh, and I think that uh, Avatar actually gives us um, access to certain kinds of, uh, of, uh, of ancient wisdoms that we are much in need of. Uh, I think that, that people, um, many people who saw it um, felt a lot of the, um, the importance and the reality, if you will, of it and understood the sort of the, the Avatarian journey that the film was, uh, was taking one on. Uh, and in that sense, it seems to me that that it's important to, if you will, defend not just the film, but the, the film's viewers uh, against the, those who would have this snooty attitude uh, and and dismiss it. Uh, and I think that that such people are, are missing out on a great deal, which is potentially available to us in popular culture. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I really enjoyed and, and And part of the reason I enjoyed it was about and maybe this ties into what you were saying about the way that we historically understand spectacle. And I know that, that both Alex and I have, have taught an article by where we were doing Gone with the Wind, which obviously in terms of epics and, and this, this film is, is you know, um, doing, doing things in, in terms of scale that is, is, and spectacle that is, is kind of re- remarkable and, and still remarkable, as you say, 10, 11 years after it was, it was released or whatever. But, but the, the, I remember Tom, yeah, Tom Brown's article about Gone with the Wind and the meaning of spectacle, i.e. that spectacle is being, you know, we know that the way that spectacle works is that it interrupts the narrative. And narrative is the bit where, that we all love and enjoy. And then the spectacle comes in and, and narrative is stopped. And there is a sort of stop and stare moment. Spectacle and narrative narrative proceeds on this forward trajectory in a way where if that's the the horizontal spectacle is the vertical that interrupts moments of narrative engagement and and tom brown's article on on gone with the wind is about okay well let's try and let's try and imbue meaning into the into spectacle spectacle must do something into and all and all of avatar as i was watching i thought this is kind of in terms of its imagery it's vfx imagery it's it's kind of use of um scenes that exploit the 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 3d space the way that movement works control and i thought there's there's so much that is spectacular about this film i can't i can't not analyze like i can't not analyze the spectacle i can't not do something with the spectacle and think politically about what the spectacle is is doing in relation to ideas of 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 identity and race and and imperialism and and the stuff that's been written on 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 avatar certainly talks about exactly the point that you made that this is it the film projects these kind of earthbound racial and colonial conflicts into outer space it's it's a it's a it's a fantasy animation that 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 simplifies through spectacle historical colonialism uh, and and part of that's where the the meat and potatoes of the the film is is that it's really a really interesting um you know it, it, okay it's a bit corny in the unobtainium okay fine but i think the film but gets that's a lot of course crit- quite deliberate right yeah it, it just, I, I mean that's so that's so obvious that it's yeah. like a sort of a nod to the audience and and a, 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 a sort of a, a a knowing kind of joke so it seems to me that, that, that there were a few people who said, oh, you know, they couldn't even be bothered to think of a real yeah. name for the mineral or something. And such people, I, I just thought, oh, my God, you're, you're such, you're so sort of dead, dead-eared, <laughs> you're so tin-eared um, yeah. to, to, what's, to what's going on here. I, I thought that, that unobtainium was, was a lovely little trick, actually. I, I suppose on the notion of fantasy, I mean, I've obviously noted down the obligatory Wizard of Oz reference that seems to occur in most films, we're not in Kansas anymore, we're in Pandora, so I know Alex is happy for this episode. But I was thinking about what 
what I, when Alex and I've talked about the meaning of kind of fantasy and that fantasy is uh, the idea of fantasy is that it only means something when you can read it politically in, in and that 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 political reading saves fantasy from being just about something else um and so obviously this film is 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 about um well it's a, it's about race it's about passing it's about um the the performance of the other it's about inter, you know, kind of the symbolic interspecies um interracial anti-colonial love story but, I, but i'm just wondering whether this all ties into to the way that fantasy has been understood politically and and and, and the way that that political readings kind of save that's how interpretation works you know you save and recuperate a film that People have been missing, but when we read it politically, we can actually do something with it. And I wonder whether that chimes with with fantasy, Alex, in 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 the way that you, I know that you've spoken about the 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 role of of fantasies that that might mean something. Well, 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 sort of, yeah. Just to embellish that point, I think that I think from from my perspective, I think <coughs> Avatar is at its most interesting when it's at its least narrative. In that the narrative mechanics. As, as you said, Rupert, a kind of deliberately kind of, you know, surface level scaffolding to something much more interesting. Yeah. But, you know, we have we have we have a story that's been told loads of different times. It's quite kind of, you know, um, it's quite folkloric. It's quite, as I say, it has shades of Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and uh, early 19th century American writers. It's uh, it's, you know, Last of the Mohicans. It's Fern Gully. It's all the things yeah. that were, were, were the film. So it's silly because it's it's th- these movies again. But as, as I think you're right with it. And I think that I think that's that's not what the film is like. The film uses that scaffolding to create these series of effective moments and sequences within the film and i think even detractors of the movie would agree with that and that they would say that well that's just meaningless spectacle when i think chris is right we should make that quite yeah. meaningful as an experience and i think no i think i think that's 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 right uh, something i talk about in in the book is is again how it's important that the film to get its full effect you do need to see the 3d version of it at least once the immersiveness of it was was deeply uh, impressive uh, and um, affecting, um, and this is one of the the levels at which the film works in terms of its title and, and its concept. You know, there are these multiple ways in which you have this idea of of uh, us needing or having or becoming or being um, avatars for ourselves or one another gets played out that there's there's a a religious or spiritual meaning to the concept of avatar representative of uh, of the divine um uh, upon earth uh, and there's obviously the way in which uh, jake the protagonist and others get to inhabit these avatar bodies and then finally at the end he actually uh, um, seeks to leave behind his human um uh, form altogether um, and all of these kinds of ways in which uh, there is um uh, a serious effort at uh, at immersion, at understanding uh, the other, and, and a serious representation of how difficult that is. You know, people sometimes say, um, "Well, uh, it's sort of there's sort of appropriation going on in Avatar because he sort of literally steps into one of their bodies," and um, and the response to that it seems to me is, "Well, look how desperately badly he fails a first at at inhabiting." Uh, the uh, the world the Pandora world at all such that he's actually on the point of of, uh, of dying of being killed until Neytiri 
comes along and saves him. And she says to him repeatedly, you know, you're like a baby, you don't understand anything, etc. And secondly, building on that, the way in which he goes through this incredible kind of uh, painful journey of of uh, of falling in love, of becoming impressed with this uh, with this uh, other way of being against his better judgment, but then of also betraying it and of uh, uh, and of having to go through this really kind of difficult process of trying to kind of uh, win back uh, trust because he's actually failed to leave behind his uh, American imperialist whatever prejudices nearly enough for the majority um, uh, of the film. So there, there's no kind of simple step of kind of uh, appropriation here. On the contrary, it's a difficult, painful journey of learning. And it's connected with the concept of uh, of what I've called um, reverse anthropology, of, of, of not going and studying uh, the natives, but going and, and learning from uh, the indigenous peoples and wisdom that we've forgotten and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that requires a kind of humility, which is, um, which is absent in most of the history of imperialism, obviously, but is also absent in most of the history of the academic world, which is why I think using this term reverse anthropology is, can be helpful to get us to see what's going on there. And the whole process, um, we use the term fantasy, but you know, I like to argue that that in a very real sense, and I think this is what you were saying, Chris, there isn't any escapism going on here at all, actually. At the end of the day, it's the opposite of escapism. And that's why in the introduction to the book, um, I use these two quotes, um, which I think are very relevant to Avatar. So a quote from the, the great philosopher Iris Murdoch, we use our imagination not to escape the world, but to join it. And this exhilarates us because of the distance between our ordinary dulled consciousness and an apprehension of the real. I think you could apply that very clearly to Avatar. And then this quote from Alan Garner, myth is not entertainment, but rather the crystallization of experience. And far from being escapist literature, fantasy is an intensification of reality. I'd like to briefly talk about 3D more because, uh, well, one, it gives me an excuse to trot out ideas for an article I'm clearly never going to write because I've been sitting on it for about 10 years. But when there was that wave of 3D and I, and I was struck, um, you know, there's so many ways we can come at the spectacle of Avatar. But one of the things that struck me and actually worked in a cinema at the time. So I, I was watching people come in and out and repeated, repeating the experience and stumbling out kind of gay, um, dazed and all the kind of cliches you might expect. Um, was was the kind of well the, the repeatability of the experience and that people were coming back and again and again and again to grab it and that's no you know that that happens with lots and lots of sort of particularly big blockbusters but what i found was there was this kind of preciousness to the experience because it was in 3d and because the kind of distributive economics were the case that large amounts of people didn't have 3d televisions they didn't have 3d technology at home as has been only exemplified since. So what you had was this very odd kind of juxtaposition, and you had this kind of new media product that kind of made meant we all got rid of our celluloid projectors and, and installed digital technology. But rather than reciprocating the kind of standard dynamics of digital, which is to make things easier to obtain and transferable across different media, and I can now I can watch Avatar on my laptop, on my phone, um, probably can get it beamed into my head somewhere, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. That required you to go to a place, sit and watch something, and know that in two years you're probably not going to be able to see it in that form again. Yeah. And there was this kind of sense of an event happening in, in yeah. a place and time 
that was very yeah. much tied to the sense of spectacle and seemed to me very interestingly anti commercial anti consumable and because it kind of dramatized the kind of preciousness of of an individual moment um, as people kind of came in and watched this film they knew that they had to kind of con- take it all in now because in two years it's or in six months or whenever their memories will fade and it will it will end and I don't know there's something about the yeah, fact yeah. that the film was in 3D that charges the spectacle with some of the stuff we're talking about and makes it very interesting in terms of its relationship to kind of you know consumer culture and new media culture and all the things that supposedly it should be championing by being this great big digital kind of beast. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, one of the ways I'm interested in uh, the the sort of political potentialities of uh, of cinema is the fact that we go and see films together in the cinema and we have this kind of shared deep immersive experience uh, in the darkness you know there's something kind of almost ritualistic uh, uh, about it um something quite unusual uh, about it in relation to our broader culture today and some of those other trends that you're mentioning there alex and i think you're right that that is particularly so for a, a film that is in uh, 3d so yeah um I think that that is something, uh, again, kind of uh, precious. Again, one of the reasons perhaps why it hasn't been as widely understood or discussed as it might have been is that uh, it's almost kind of uh, scary or, or, or inspiring or it kind of connects us to, to things that we're, that we're a bit... Um, we're a bit nervous about the, the, the kind of shared rituals from our past and some kind of sense that maybe some of those rituals had their literally kind of darker side uh, uh, as well. Mm. Um, I, w- I, w- I think that, uh, that the, the way in which um, people got to experience Avatar um, together um, is important. And I think that it's really important that it, in the... Uh, in the COVID era, we, we don't lose those kinds of experiences. I think it's really important that uh, the cinema and the theatre and so forth um, are uh, are preserved and, and that we realise just how important uh, they are to us um, as beings who are, are far, far more than separate atomized uh, individuals. And, and I think perhaps that there's a there's a more interesting way of connecting the film to the sort of legacy and history of fantasy, in that you could you can go back to sort of literature examples of 200 years ago, but perhaps it's more interesting to go back to kind of you know folkloric storytelling because that's it, isn't it? It's exactly the same thing in that it's communal, mm. it's shared, it's effective, yes. and the structures of the tale are the things that are known and everybody already knows that. Those are the playing grounds for these effective, dynamic, cultural, communal experiences that we could kind of map on to the kind of experiences people were having um, yeah. with Avatar. So this is one of the connections I make to, to Lord of the Rings. It, it's, mm. it's, it's, mu- it's more than just the hero's journey. It's the creation of a sort of new myth, which is based on old myths and old traditions mm. of storytelling. It's the way that um, if, you, if you look at the, uh, the, the structure of the story of, of the Lord of the Rings, um, it's unbelievably simple and also in a way kind of unbelievably kind of um, artificial, almost stupid, uh, as, is, as has often been mentioned and as I discuss it in my book, um, all they need to do actually is hitch a ride on one of the eagles in the first place and just <laughs> shoot off to Mount Doom and dump the ring straight in there. But of course that would spoil the whole um, quest uh, and the whole potentiality for death and and 
and rebirth uh, and um, uh, a reworking of a kind of closeness to the earth and a reworking of kind of community and so on, which are the a actual sort of, you know, quasi-archetypal sort of Jungian kind of mythic kind of things that are going on in it. And, and somewhat similar remarks uh, could be made about Avatar in terms of... Um, a sort of shared uh, quasi kind of folkloric experience is again, of course, that that is what the kind of central opposition that is being kind of um, offered or, or portrayed in Avatar is kind of all about. You've got a kind of confrontation between a culture of pseudo-individualism. I say pseudo-individualism because, of course, our culture and American culture isn't really even a proper culture of individualism. It's actually a culture of massive uh, conformism, but uh, a culture of pseudo-individualism which supposedly uh, valorizes uh, uh, the freedom to consume and exploit and so on and so forth uh, against uh, a culture of uh, attunement and um, uh, togetherness and community and in the best sense uh, tribalism. Um, so it's almost as if the way in which we are brought together by the experience of watching um, Avatar is yet another sort of avatarian kind of um, metonym for the uh, for the uh, the message, if you will, uh, of the film, the possibility that's being offered by the uh, by the reverse anthropology uh, that it uh, that it gestures at. Just I was I wanted to go back to the because the the Murdoch quote where. Uh, and I, and I guess this chimes with with Alex's interest, you know, that fantasy matters and that it's 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 real. And and obviously one of the things that, that that Avatar does is kind of reverse the polarities and the mission reverses the polarities, whereby the real world and this is manifest, I think, in the film's color palette. You know, the the real world becomes increasingly illusory to this disillusioned protagonist, um, whereas the world of Pandora becomes increasingly sort of real. Whilst at the same time, for us as spectators, we never lose the fact that it is an illusion. But my goodness, it's a real illusion. And there's something about the the, the film's acknowledgement of of the fantasy of both spaces. And I was and I wonder whether because you talked a little bit about the sort of complexities of the film, because I think for me watching at first viewing the sort of links to links to, to, to race are, are of course clear if we think about uh obama this sort of post-racial refrain that that the inauguration of, of 44th president is sort of ushering in this this truly democratic post-racial moment um and then looking at the film in terms of its casting and the and we talked a little bit about this when we did the the, the podcast on on happy feet and the the erasure of, of labor and, and specifically black black labor um the way that the navis zoe saldana cch pounder uh wes studi laz alonso so we have um, an American Dominican, a Guyanese American, a Cherokee American, um, uh, and, a, and a black actor in, in Alonso playing the 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 other Navi, um, and so it's sort of difficult not to not to see the not to see the film quite explicitly in these terms. But from what from what you're from what you're saying, it seems like the film is tr trying to do trying to do something with that with that discourse. It's trying to 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 talk about potentially. I don't know. The, the the fantasy of the post-racial so it's 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 not and and writing around the film has, has sort of tied it into films you know as wide-ranging as the blind side from 2009 again a film that sort of ushers in a we've solved racism tick we're colorblind and of course the problem with colorblind racism is that if you're colorblind you don't see patterns um and so 
I'm trying to get my head around what the film is doing in relation to the post-racial and, and, and the way it's, is it a sort of simplistic reading to sell? The film is just rehearsing these same old issues of racial difference or is, is part of what it's trying to do play with those cultural discourses of, post, of the post-racial as they were circulating in America at, at the time? Yeah, so um, obviously it's complicated stuff here and, and a lot going on and I can yeah. only offer my own um, sort of interpretation um, of it. That interpretation would be that um, on the one hand, as I said before, and I, I do think this is very important, um, the the central character who's our, our avatar in the film um, yeah. uh goes on a, a very long, difficult and painful um, uh, hero's journey of kind of two steps forward and three steps back and, uh, and so forth. Um, and there, there's no easy way to, to get to the kind of point that the film is wanting you to get to, which is a point where you are actually in a position to, to start to take more seriously our need, which I believe is really profound, for some kind of return to um, to uh, indigenous wisdom, to, to some of the things which Native American peoples, for example, knew that we've managed to forget about long-termism, about the about what we owe to the land and owe to each other and owe to the past and owe to the future uh, and so forth. Um, but then I think the film is also kind of suggesting that, that if we do that, then yes, there is the, the possibility for us to um, overcome uh, and leave behind some of the uh, narrownesses uh, and um, constraining aspects of our identities and of and of race, uh, and I think that is absolutely crucial. I think that if we if we stay forever in um, a sort of mentality of well, the, these injustices and so on can never be uh, overcome, can never be repaid, etc then, uh, as Nietzsche, um, I think, correctly argued, uh, we're condemning ourselves to, uh, to remain forever sort of hobbled and forever um, um, stuck apart from each other. There has to be the possibility uh, of some kind of uh, moving on uh, and of some kind of creation uh, of more harmonious uh, relations between ourselves. Uh, and I think it is absolutely um, crystal clear that while there remain um, really horrible um, aspects of racism in our society and in our world and in our politics, I think it's absolutely crystal clear that in most countries of the world, including the US and the UK, the situation vis-a-vis race has on balance improved over the past generation or two. And Obama becoming president is is merely one um, symptom of that. Whereas I think it's really important to be clear that the situation vis-a-vis um, ecology has drastically deteriorated over the last generation or two. Um, so one of uh, my sort of um, political philosophy missions, if you will, is to try to get us to a position, and this is difficult but to, uh, and, and has all sorts of hazards attached to it, but to try to get us to a position where we can see a little bit more clearly um, what the greatest obstacles and challenges facing us now are. Uh, and, um, well, my, my argument in the book and my argument, if you will, in my life and in my activism is that actually the, the greatest challenge we now face is uh, in some sort of coming together 
to stop ourselves from um, destroying our posterity and destroying our planetary home. And that, again, of course, is precisely what this film um, is, is all about. Um, and one of the things which I think um, Extinction Rebellion has done rather well on balance, although it, it's not without its difficulties, um, is to suggest that at the end of the day, uh, we do need to come together in a sort of broad-based uh, movement um, across uh, identities, across um, political um, commitments, etc., to face this um, civilizational emergency uh, together uh, without recrimination, uh, and that and that only some kind of attitude like that might manage to overcome some of the kinds of polarizations of our society and some of the kinds of attachments to identity, which at the end of the day, I think, um, are are only harmful and only keep us in our boxes. So I had a, a kind of question on that ecological environmental um uh, dimension element is i was i was thinking and i was talking to you briefly as before we started that there's a moment i think it's just after um jake's told that his sort of new legs are quote a done deal uh that he's going to get which you know are also digitally enhanced he is also a digital body before he becomes an avatar um but anyway um that what struck me is that there's so he he's told um that his his new legs are a done deal and then he takes part in a sort of indigenous ceremony um and he talks about this is like the last step that i need before i'll i'll become one of them he says um and then there's a scene with him and, and zoe zaldana's character where they're walking through uh, what looks like this sort of digital farm of, of miles and miles of fiber optic cable and i was thinking again about 2009 and technology and um and so according to cnn smartphones portable gaming devices um the rise in ebooks um not 2009 is the arrival of, of microsoft Bing as well um individuals became publishers through the acceleration of twitter um and so I was trying to get my head around the film as a sort of this is, you know, the world of connection and the world of connectivity and and, and Alex mentioned earlier, the sort of new media culture. Is, is there a sort of, is there a paradox whereby a film that is so, so hyper um, technological making claims about the environment, i.e. there's something quite, you know, there's something paradoxical about a, a kind of digital farm. And so I'm just trying to, and I, and I wonder whether that's part of why the film has been critiqued in certain kind of academic circles with regards to, well, it, it's it's one of the most technological films, i.e. what it was doing for motion capture in 2009, part of the the buzz around the film that feeds into its sort of imaginary status as this is Beermoth, as Alex mentioned right at the start. Is there a tension between, um, and I don't know, but is there a tension between this sort of hyper um, technological world of facade, um, control connectivity does that does that un undo some of the ecological work of the film or the environmental work of the film or, or is is the film sort of doing something quite obvious with that connection yeah so uh, of course that tension um is there and of course people can make and have made a lot of it yeah i guess what i would see uh, as more important countervailing factors would be these uh, firstly, what Chris and what Alex and I were discussing um, before, to do with these intriguing ways in which the the film actually um, portrays, um, evokes, um, uh, metaphorizes, um, uh, and makes real certain kinds of experience of of, uh, of connectivity and community. Um, secondly, the way in which um, that the film 
um, portrays that in relation to the the ecological world and gives us really some very very vivid, clear, um, explicit, powerful, immersive experiences of ecological connectivity, of ideas which you know are still very new to us, really. Of, uh, for example, trees communicating with each other and kind of sharing various kinds of um, uh, of knowledge uh, and um, a mutual support and so on. You know, a generation or two, if you would have said that to, to, that trees do that to people, they would have said, "Well, you've obviously been taking too much of something." You know, that's that's not reality, but it is reality. We're finding out more and more about that reality. And the film brought that to public um, understanding pretty much for the first time. And finally, and this is really the, the place where I, I, I end my chapter on Avatar in, in the book, the really important way that the, the film um, poses a question to us um, at the end of it. And the way I see the question is this. So you have the, the battle at the end of Avatar in which, um, and I think this is a very important fact, um, the, the Na'vi, uh, the Rebel Alliance uh, lose. Um, uh, they, you think, well, they'll win the, the, the military fight because this is a film, right? And we're not going to have <laughs> some kind of uh, um, Ned Stark kind of horrible moment of uh, mutual defeat, uh, defeat and kind of sad ending here. Um, and it turns out that you're, you're half right, but you're also half wrong. I mean, they, they, on, in military terms, they lose the battle. And they only win because uh, Awa um, herself, the Gaia, Gaia's avatar in the film, uh, rides to the rescue uh, by um, bringing the, uh, the, the planet's animals um, into the fray. Um, now, if one, if one projects back from that to our own situation... I think it is clear to pretty much everybody except people who really have taken far too much of something that that isn't going to happen um, on the earth, right? So the film then poses implicitly the question to you, if we're going to get the right result here, how is that going to happen? Because it's damn well for sure not going to happen in the way that we've just portrayed it. The way we've just portrayed it is a metaphor. It's as it were what ought to, to happen. It would be wonderful if Gaia herself uh, rose up and uh, and took a sort of well, hopefully relatively painless revenge um, to use uh, to allude to the term that James Lovelock um, uses in his famous book. Um, so we have to figure out how to do this. We have to figure out how to try to um, arrive at some kind of conclusion, which is a bit like the conclusion that gets arrived at in the film, but in a way that isn't just based in fantasy. And that takes one into um, all the. The, the methods of, uh, of um, activism and politics and paradigm shift and so forth that, uh, that relate to the fact, for example, that as we mentioned earlier, a number of, um, of civil society movements have explicitly appealed to the film um, and said, look, our struggle is like this struggle. Um, and then the way that the film poses this in its very final uh, moments, as I see it, which is that... Um, Jake manages to successfully transmigrate into uh, into his uh, avatarian body, um, and, and the very final shot of the film um, breaks the fourth wall as he opens uh, his eyes with the you know the reference back to the way which the film is over and over again about what it is to really see something, or to see someone, to see a being. Uh, he opens his eyes, and and now for the first time, he's looking directly at us, and it seems to me that that is opposing of the question to us now what are you going to do what are we going to do 
to to wake up? What are we going to do to manifest this kind of uh, knowledge and experience that we've undergone vicariously and more than vicariously in the last uh, two or three hours? Um, and in that sense, it seems to me again that the the film um, invites us into a. Uh, uh, invites us kind of ingenuously um, into um, what would be a real politics of, uh, of ecology and, uh, uh, and activism and, and at the very least life change of some kind or another, which as I say, it seems that quite a lot of people did literally get the message uh, of, uh, from the film. Uh, and that seems to me to, um, to overcome uh, these kinds of questions of, oh, well, yeah, but does the end justify the means and what about the hyper-technologism of the film and so on, that the film um, invites you in more than one way in this kind of um, escalating, cumulative kind of fashion to reflect on uh, what you've experienced and what you've learned and what you're going to do about it uh, and on what we're going to do about it because it's absolutely, once again, categorically obvious uh, from the film and from any kind of basic reflection on it that you're not going to get anywhere here uh, unless you do it as part of some much broader uh, uh, collective. I, I I love what you're saying there, because I think it chimes with what I try to bang on about in the podcast, which is that, you know, if fantasy storytelling means anything or can be separated from any other kinds of storytelling, it's because it, it presents us things we know are impossible. Um, and mm, that, therefore, yeah. is actually far more complicated and challenging than we often give it credit for, because watching images we know are impossible as you just articulated so well, can in very ways confront us to think about ways to realise them or to think about the reasons why they are impossible and all these kind of mm. things. So I think yeah. your reading of the ending is really kind of uh, bang on exactly in how I tend to read fantasy anyway. So so mm. so yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I guess the, fi the final kind of fly in the ointment I, I would like us to address is that's, that's all kind of, I think, um, that makes sense on the screen to me. And I suspect your answer will be quite similar in terms of if we talked about the ecology of Avatar off screen. But I think it's worth just raising because it might be something listeners are thinking about as we're talking. You know, there, there's been a movement sort of within media and film studies to talk about the sort of green impact of media. You know, there's a there's um, Richard Maxwell and Toby Miller's Greening the Media, which kind of did the rounds a few years ago, which was a you know really interesting attempt to kind of get us to think about the kind of you know material mineral. Um, aspect yeah. of our media consumption and our media creation and the, and the ton of toxic, hazardous substances that we carry around in our pockets. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I I don't know. I don't. I don't really have a firm view on this because I want to avoid the fatalism that says, well, anyone that has a Twitter account has no right to have an opinion on ecology because they're using Twitter, which is ridiculous. It's like arguing that people who bought a coffee when they are, when they were occupying St. Paul's uh, were taking part in the capitalist system, you know. Yeah. Um, that fatalism is, is not interesting and not helpful. At the same time, you know, there's got to be a balance exchange kind of you know, thought here. And we're not talking about someone using a Twitter account or using a Zoom or anything like that. We're talking about a movie that that cost billions um, and, and did... I mean, I don't know the, the history of this particular movie very well, but certainly I know James Cameron is a figure that comes up in, in Maxwell and Miller's book as a... You know, the, the carbon footprint of Titanic was, was, was pretty disastrous. Its ecological impact on the shores of Mexico was, was pretty disastrous. It, you know, it, it destroyed fishing reserves and all this kind of stuff it was you know it had some lasting and real what lied ecolo mm. ecological consequence i mean that was titanic yeah. which is not a movie that 
necessarily we could champion as having any kind of ecological message. But I just, you know, there is a kind of a, another tension off screen of this movie. How much? What's the, what's the cost? Of of making this movie, of distributing this movie, of buying DVDs of this movie, of all this kind of stuff versus its potential impact as as a force for good. I thought, could you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, look, I think we could and should see uh, Avatar as a kind of uh, sequel to Titanic um, in two senses. Firstly, um, well, maybe um, Cameron learned a bit from Titanic about some of the mistakes not to make again. Uh, and this is not uh, an area of my um, top expertise, but my understanding is that actually, um, certainly the carbon footprint of uh, Avatar was way, way less, mm. precisely because so much of it is uh, is in the studio and is CGI and so on. And there was far, far less on location uh, costs and actual movement of, uh, of medium-sized dry goods around the world and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's an intriguing um, sort of hopeful fact uh, about the film. The other sense in which I think we should see uh, Avatar is a sequel to Titanic is I think that Titanic did have a sort of uh, embryonic um, uh, message of, of an ecological kind, which was to do with um, with uh, the melting of uh, icebergs coming way too far south and sinking uh, a ship for which Reed... Uh, a civilization that was uh, too big to fail and that, that was assumed that it was unsinkable uh, and impregnable. Uh, and our assumption that we are unsinkable and impregnable uh, is, uh, well, false, not to put too fine a point on it. Mm. Um, and I think that what Avatar did is uh, is take that kind of idea and, uh, and make it absolutely essential and pivotal uh, to the film and make it something that, is, that uh, was important to be... Um, well experienced uh and i think it's it succeeded really you know very impressively in that and i guess my my hope going forward is that yeah absolutely we, we it's important to pay attention to these uh these actual you know um material uh, green aspects of uh, of media and so on of course but it's also uh important to be clear about um the possibility that works like this could be somewhat game-changing uh, on a much larger um, piece, on a much larger um, stage. And boy, do we need that kind of game-changingness. Um, Avatar uh, appeared, coincidentally, uh, in cinemas at the exact same time as the uh, Copenhagen uh, Climate Summit failed us so drastically in 2009. Uh, and now here we are, uh, 12 years later, um, uh, awaiting the uh, the... The, the cop in in Glasgow, uh, which I think will will fail us, albeit not so drastically, and uh, awaiting still the uh, the Avatar uh, sequels. And of course, I've got no idea whether they're going to be any good, but I've got a bit of uh, a bit of hope around them. And I think that um, if more people were to try to uh, invest more in um, well in active hope in some kind of project of kind of accentuating the the positive in um, in what's offered to us by films like this in terms of a possibility of really um, waking up and deeply changing. And if we were to try to, as I said earlier, um, build something real um, around those, well, then maybe um, we would start to uh, create a, a situation where there would be a little bit more hope than there currently is. Because, you know, uh, with my ecological 
hat on and uh, looking at other books of mine, like my little book with the cheery title, This Civilization is Finished. Um, things are, 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 are pretty, um, pretty dire. Uh, and we need, we need, as Jake puts it memorably towards the end of the film, we need to go to a whole nother level. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I think that the, the, the films I talk about in my book and perhaps this film in particular, um, all sorts of things we could uh, bring up and potential criticism of them, obviously. But I think that, that they do offer us some kind of possibility of going to a whole nother level. And boy, that is exactly what we need to do. Well, I think on that note of, of hope, I will, I'll ask you, um, I'll ask, we'll, we'll, we'll attempt to wrap up, but I'll ask you just about the book more broadly. You've been kind enough to talk to us about an aspect of it, which was, um, I know you talk about um, Avatar in relation to Lord of the Rings, as you've mentioned, um, but a film, philosophy of ecology, of, uh, a film philosophy of ecology and enlightenment, um, is, it's, yeah. it's broader than that, right? And actually, we haven't even got onto the sort of more philosophical aspect of it and its relationship to Wittgenstein and all this kind of stuff. So perhaps you could just give um, uh, readers a sense of what else they might get from the book. Well, yeah. So, sure. If you've been enjoying the podcast, obviously, I'd encourage you to uh, to uh, to get hold of the book. You can get it from your library. It is also possible if you're very devious to to find it much more uh, cheaply on the uh, on the worldwide interweb. Um, and um, yeah, it basically, it takes you through a, a sequence of films which I've picked because um, I believe that they um, can be read in this kind of affirmative way and rather than kind of picking holes which i think is all too easy to do i, I look at films like uh waltz with bashir and uh, apocalypto and um uh, melancholia and uh, solaris 2001 gravity lord of the rings trilogy and, and avatar uh and um and uh and seek to understand these in a sort of philosophical and, and uh, eco-political way as giving us um, vicarious and real experiences of the kind of uh, awakening and, and uh, life-changing and world-changing um, change of uh, vision, change of view um, that I think that, uh, that we need. And, yeah, I guess I'm pretty proud of the, the book. And uh, it does connect with, uh, with Wittgenstein's uh, philosophy in ways that people might find interesting. I, I regard Wittgenstein as a fundamentally liberatory and ethical thinker, which is a sort of new perspective on Wittgenstein, but it's also completely accessible without any uh, knowledge of, of Wittgenstein or for that matter, really, of, of philosophy, I hope. Um, a lot of it is based very much in staying close to, to the films and finding what we can find in them and, as I put it, finding ourselves um, in them. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I, uh, I, I'm continuing to, to do some of that. I hope to do more work in this area in the future and I'm, I'm just now writing a, a, another piece on... Uh, on gravity for a volume, for example. Um, so this continues to be an area of my interest for those of you who are of a more sort of philosophical or, or academic bent. Terrific. Uh, Rupert, thanks again for coming on the podcast. You've been a terrific guest. Um, thanks for your time. Cheers, no problem. Um, you can find us, of course, via our various social media streams. We're out in the digital sphere, selling out uh, on uh, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at FanAnim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, and our website, fantasy-animation.org. You can access our blog archive and our podcast archive, um, as well as um, there's an episode on Moana where we talk a bit more about film philosophy, so if you're interested in that, you can check that out too. Um, we talk a lot about water as well in that episode, so somewhat ecological as well. Um, otherwise, that's been us for another week, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.